Hey, so if you're listening to this, or you're not listening yet, but if you're listening to me talking, you're about to hear a lecture from Psychology, also Biology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term of 2023. How in the hell is it 2023? That means I'm 58 years old, and I imagine that makes me old. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this, but, uh, you know, if you're one of my students, great. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this, and I do this for you. If you're somebody else listening, I really don't care what you think, but uh, actually, it's pretty great because I'm really good at this. Enjoy. All right, so uh, we ended up last time talking about the evolution of language a little bit. Um, the idea here is that to truly understand, like, I think this is maybe the second class I said this, to truly understand the behavior of its cause and function. So if you're gonna know its cause and function, we've talked a bit about cause, let's talk a bit about the evolution, the function of it, okay? So how did human language evolve? Excellent question. <laughs> Uh, and I, I think I mentioned last time, unless one of us invents a time machine, there's no way to read what we know. It's also behavior that only one species has. So it doesn't fossilize very well. The comparative method for the people biologists in the room doesn't work very well either. Nothing else does this. So it's going to be a hard thing to figure out. So we're going to have to make some guesses. Talking about how new languages can spring up, the Nicaraguan sign language example, um, and how we're probably wired for language. Humans are hooked up for language. Not a particular language, and in that language can be a gestural language, it can be a sign language, it need even be a spoken language, right? Okay, so that's where we ended up. So, the idea here is that people started with gestures which makes some sense, right? Just pointing to things, stuff like that. And what ended up happening was that the mothers would gesture to their kids. One of the things that, the difference between us and the other primates is we don't have fur. So for a, for a baby chimpanzee, it's incredibly easy to stay with your mom. You hold on, it's really simple. You just grab on the back and you're fine. Now, for a human, unless you're hanging on to the hair on the back of the that's going to hurt. So the kid's not going to do that. And the, not the skin's not going to work. There's no, so the, what does the mom have to do when she's out gathering nuts and berries? Because remember, the hunter gathers, as a rule, males would have been doing hunting, females would be gathering in childcare. Um, you have to put the kid down. You have to. You can't take blueberries or get nuts or whatever easily with just one hand. This is the baby. So you put the baby down. Now you put the baby down, you've got to calm the baby. So this is, the, this is a guess. And the idea is that at first it was just gestures and stuff. And then it became what we call mother ease. And mother ease is, oh, look at that. You know, talking like that to a baby. People still do that, by the way. Today. We just do it automatically. It's something that happens when you see a baby. It's really strange. Your voice goes up a couple of octaves. And it literally is something that we automatically do. You do it if you never had a brother or sister. Like it's just something we're hooked up to do that. So it makes you think, oh, okay. So maybe that's where it evolved from. Maybe it was just young infants and toddlers communicating with their moms. And through kin selection, the idea here is that you're nice to your relatives. This would have spread. And eventually, uh, even adult males would be speaking. So it's probably, this, this, this hypothesis says, at first it was adult females, women, talking to, it's weird talking about people that long ago as women and men, but they were, uh, and their babies, and eventually it spreads to the males. This also kind of fits with the notion, and it's true, that uh, modern humans Women outscore men in language, on language tests. So it kind of fits. Is this true? I don't know. I don't have a time machine. It could be. It's a nice story. But I, I don't know it's true. The idea of gest something from gestures, I would bet some money on that. But the other stuff, I'm not sure. 
Now, we all come from Africa originally, right? Humans evolved in Africa. The further you move out from Africa, when you look at languages, the fewer phonemes they have. Now, wait, why does that matter? Remember, phonemes are just units of light, units of sound. Well, complicated things get sort of tuned as they move away. It doesn't make, doesn't make anything more or less good or more or less evolved, right? But this kind of fits with the idea that it's spread out with people as they moved along. There's less genetic diversity in humans. If you look, for those who um, evolved, uh, sorry, not evolved, uh, left Africa later, the most genetic diversity you'll see in humans is in Africa, is people who are, who, you know, Africans. Language has a genetic basis. Why, yes. Yes, I am. So, because we'll talk about that in just a second, about how there's a whole case study I can talk about, which I will. Language probably showed up around 100,000 to 50,000 years ago. It would have fit together with, with what we call behavioral modernity. Somebody, 100,000, you think 100,000 to 50,000 years ago, and we brought him or her into this room, clean him up, put some clothes on him. They'd seem like anybody else. They'd be amazed at all kinds of stuff. But once they got past the technology and all that stuff, they'd be one of, they're one of us, they're, they're modern humans. It's amazing that they would be, and they would be capable of learning everything we can learn. So you could teach, if we could somehow take someone from 50,000 years ago to here, we could teach them how to use, we could teach them how to make viral caveman TikTok videos. No problem. So it's kind of cool that these are, these are us, the people 50,000 years ago. Okay. Like I said, coincides with behavioral modernity. That's when this explosion happens. There's a couple of these, that's tool use, but 10,000 years ago, it's like my, uh, agriculture starts, things like that. Okay. So, there's a family in the UK, I think they're from Wales, uh, and they're called the KE family, and they have a very particular mutation, um, and about one-third of the kids, in the, in, uh, kids born from that family develop what's, have what's called developmental verbal dyspraxia. It's a disorder where people know what they want to say, they can't say it. So it's a language processing disorder. But, but they know what they want to say. They're, they're, they can't make their mouth make the words, and they can't write the words, but they know what the words are they want to say. This isn't a matter of people not being able to speak or having some kind of other developmental issue. This is they just can't find words. They, in fact, even have less motor uh, they have less activity in the areas of their brain that actually control their tongue and their lips. Like, making words doesn't happen with these folks easily. Easily. They have a mutation on a gene called FOXP2 on chromosome 7. And FOXP2 is a gene that's really important in, well, in language, obviously, but it's also important in other species for communication. So if you look at birds, uh, songbirds, they, FOXP2 is one of the genes that regulates song production. And bird song is com bird communication, for example. So a lot of animals' communication systems uh, need FOXP2. All right, questions on that? So it seems that language evolved and it's got a genetic basis. All right, yeah, John. So what does, um, what is a FOX2? Oh, what is it? It's a gene. Yeah. So the thing is it produces a protein called, oh my God, I just blanked on the name of the protein. 
it produces a protein, <laughs> I can't remember which one, um, that is important in controlling uh, production of language. And that includes everything from moving your tongue to knowing how to move your fingers if you're signing. Yeah. That kind of thing. So it's all that. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember the name of the protein. So conclusive about language. Language is uniquely human. Um, it's something only we do. And you can talk all you want about cocoa and all these other things. That's not language, what they're doing. Animal models of this are hard uh, because it's something only we do. They're not impossible. You might be able to do some stuff with bird song, but remember the common ancestor of humans and birds is a long time ago. And most people doing work on sort of animal communication and looking at things like ape language projects, stuff like that, they aren't really doing this as a model for human language. It's more of an animal cognition question. And like any other characteristic, language evolved, right? All right, so that's language. Let's close that slideshow. And not that one yet. Let's do that, shall we? Okay. Stop thinking. I don't know why there's an exclamation point there. Oh, by the way, so we will definitely have a chance to have a class where you can just come and ask questions for what we think. Uh, that will be a week from today. That'll be Monday for sure we'll be able to do that if people will be interested in that. Right, because this is, yeah, this will be our last one. So let's talk about thank you. One of the most cognitively complex animals on this planet. Uh, I'm a comparative psychologist. I can tell you with a lot of certainty that there's nothing like a human. Uh, yeah, there's nothing like this. We can think about objects that aren't present. Now, other animals probably can do this too, but not the way we can. We can think about abstract ideas. You might say, yeah, sure, I, I bet uh, a J of some sort searching for food, a pinion J searching, or a scrub J searching for uh, a stored food probably knows when it put it there and can imagine it. Yeah, it probably can. Does a scrub J, a pinion J, or a chimpanzee know what freedom, dignity, or justice are? Probably not. Those are pretty abstract ideas. That's something I don't think other animals can do. Right? You don't see a whole lot of dogs walking around saying, what about dog rights? I don't trust any species who greets each other by licking each other's asses. So, thank you. Nothing? Nothing? Like nothing? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so when you think about abstract ideas, something other species can't do, um, we use symbolic and syntactic language, which we just talked about. We plan and string events together. Do other animals plan? Yes, of course they do. At the level we do, I don't think so. I can have you imagine something that you have never seen, and you can all do it. Imagine if the sky was plaid, like checker. You just did it. It's trivially easy to do. We can't get another animal to do that. We can imagine the impossible. Right? Okay. So, we're pretty special. So let's think about how we do this with our brains, because that's what we're doing it. So, how are thoughts encoded in the brain? We're starting to get to really big questions here. Yeah, let's just change that to current and next. There we go. Okay. These monkeys, this is an experiment where you have monkeys and they're looking at a computer screen. And they're sitting there looking at the computer screen and they have to push a button when they detect that more, more uh, dots are moving left than right. And then the other half are more right than left, okay? And there's just dots on the screen. Monkeys obviously are really good at this. They push a button, they get a little squirt of uh, orange juice in their mouth. They like that, everybody's happy, the monkey's happy, I'm happy, everybody's happy. Learn this very quickly. 
The thing is, I can say I know exactly when the dots started moving. I know exactly when that happened. Because I wrote the, well, not me, but pretend, pretend I did this. The scientist knew the, because he or she wrote, in this case was a he, wrote the software so they know exactly what happened. Okay. And then you take a look and you see, when did the monkey notice it? And we can take a look and go, oh, well, it's motion. It's got to be V5. Look at V5 in the monkey and you can see when it notices this. It notices this. Like, what's the difference, the amount of time between when we see that those neurons in V5 are firing and the monkey actually pushes the button and gets the screw up or it's not. And it's 300 milliseconds. 300 milliseconds, so three, one, three tenths or three one hundredths, sorry, 31 hundredths or 3,001 million, one thousandths in a second, so 300 milliseconds, before the actual res behavioral response is given, the animal's brain has detected it. This isn't some sort of lag. It just takes that much time. And the same thing happens to you. So if I took you, and we'll use you, and we're going to put you in a room, and you're going to look at a clock, and it's a sweeping hand, and as soon as it hits 12, you hit the button. You'd be very good at that, because we'd all be very good at that. We got you hooked up to an EEG, though. And 300 milliseconds before you push the button, let's see, using your right hand, so left motor, right about here, and we'd have the EEG here, we'd get a spike of 300 milliseconds before a positive brainwave, 300 milliseconds before you actually did this. You, you wouldn't detect this. You wouldn't notice. You, felt, you wouldn't feel that. And it would happen as the clock, so let's say this is going around every minute, so or not every minute, it's too slow. Even if it's every second, 300 milliseconds before it was going to hit, that's when you, we would see that in your brain. And that would happen to all of us in this room. Our brains detect things before we're consciously aware of them. That should tell you something, then. If you're catching a baseball, if you're catching a baseball, you have to figure out when to stick your hand in, right? With your glove, catch it. That happens 300 milliseconds before you put your hand in. Which means, if you're playing just catch with somebody, it takes less than a second. If I was to just, if we were just throwing cat, playing baseball, and you're somebody standing in the corner, and we're just throwing the ball back and forth, it takes less than 300 milliseconds for, me, for the ball to get there. That means as I'm doing this, your brain's already figured out where and when to put your hand out before it's, the ball's left my hand. That means when a, a hockey goalie makes a glove save on a slap shot from, say, Shea Weber, he used to play for Canadians, and he had like, the hardest shot in the league, 106 miles an hour, that shot gets there in a tenth of a second. That means while he is winding up, the goalie's brain has already gone, oh, I know when to put my hand in. And that happens all the time. And you're not aware of it. Isn't that wild? So we know that there's sort of thoughts that happen before actions. And we even know that it's often what's called a P300, a positive brainwave 300 milliseconds before the behavior. These individual cortical neurons were detecting motion, because this is for individual neurons, and making decisions. Is there motion or not? So Donald Hebb, you've heard a lot about Donald Hebb in this class, which you should, because he invented, he and Brendan Milner basically invented this discipline. Um, talked about cell assemblies. What a cell assembly is, is a massive, massively connected bunch of neurons that fire, and when they fire, it means something. So it could mean, oh, that is a coffee mug. So the I have this idea of the cell assembly. So the cells are basically assembled themselves in a way such that they all fire at the same time, showing, oh, that's a coffee cup, or I am in this situation, I'm in class now, whatever.
it's, what's really important here is what we call the association cortex. That's a new term, Dave. Where'd that come from? Well, basically everything in your brain that isn't a, called primary visual cortex, primary motor and sensory. So basically most of your brain, so not your occipital lobe, not some of your parietal lobe, but all your frontal lobe, a lot of your temporal lobe, some of your parietal lobe are called your association cortex. They're putting stuff together. That's most of the cortex. It's most of it. So this, it, these, this, I almost hesitate to call it an area. It's most of your damn brain. It gets input from thalamus, so that tells you it's sensation, right? But also, it feeds back on itself and from areas that themselves get input from primary sensory input. So it, it's putting stuff together. A lot of this is happening frontally, right? Because it's the lobe that has nothing else to do, right? So let's talk about some specific stuff. Some spatial cognition. Our ability to deal with spatial cognition may have evolved, maybe the reason we ended up being, quote, conscious. Um, Point is. So we had, we evolved from arboreal species, right? Like that lived in trees. Then we, all, we split off into our own line. If you look at animals that are living trees, you would think, oh, well, they should be good at some stuff. One of them would be jumping from tree to tree, because if you mess that up, you're dead. Right? If you can't go, okay, I got to do this kind of jump and that branch will support me. If you screw that up, you're dead. And we evolved from primates that lived in trees. So we should be able, we should be good at things that are spatial. But then we got down to the ground, because our loin went that way, and we had no need for this really complicated spatial cognition module not quite this complicated, it got used by something else, it probably got taken over by sort of self-awareness. You have to be kind of self-aware too, you have to know where you are if you're jumping from tree to tree. How could we test this? That's something, how could you test that? Well, there is one way you can test if an animal is self-aware. I'm not entirely sure I'd buy it, but I'm going to tell you what it is anyway. It's called the dot test. What you do, you take the animal, you teach it what a mirror is. You show the animal a mirror, it looks itself in the mirror, and then you, so it learns what the mirror is. Then you put a dot on its head. Now you, you put it under anesthetic first, it's asleep, and you put a dot on its head. Just with, you know, marker. And then you show the animal the mirror again. You think, oh, what the hell's that? What is this? It's the same. That says something. Because some animals never learn that. If you take a gorilla and show it a mirror, it just thinks it's another gorilla and attacks the mirror. A chimp will look at the thing, what the hell? What's going on? An orangutan will do that, a baboon will do that, a person will do that. But gorillas don't. Gorillas never lived in trees. Oh. So maybe being in trees and going from tree to tree and having to know where exactly where you are helped us evolve this weird thing that we have called consciousness. Right? Maybe. It's a guess, anyway. That, and also remember we talked about early on in the course, standing up and our heart getting bigger and all that. Okay. All that said, we do still, we're still pretty, pretty good at spatial cognition. Um, and we do seem to have specialized subsystems that deal with different kinds of problems. Of, of uh, I wanted to say psychological problems, that sounds like mental health thing, that's not what I mean. Uh, problems in the environment. So we'll call them modules. And a module is a cognitive organ. It doesn't have to actually be a separate part of the brain. But it is a system in the nervous system that has its own rules. So we'll call these different modules. What did I just do there? That's not what I meant to do. Okay. 
So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you a couple of series of slides here that are from conference presentations that I've given over the years about how studying human spatial cognition and the neural basis of it without actually having to go into anybody's brain. So the first one I'm going to talk to you about is, this is quite a while ago, uh, I've worked there in 20 years, quite a while ago, so that's me and two of my students from back then. And there they are, that's Corey and Andrea. Corey was my lab assistant, and he was amazing, and the way I got everything done back then was, hey, Corey, and he just did stuff for me, so it was wonderful. Uh, Corey's reading a paper there called A Purely Geometric Module in the Rat's Spatial Representation. So, and that's a paper by a guy named Ken Cheng. Ken Cheng got the ball roll, rolling, or the <clears throat> cocoa puff, actually, because that's what was used. He found that rats would use geometric information to locate a food source in a rectangular arena. We'll explain this in a sec, um, rather than other kinds of information. So let me go through this, okay? So it's, the errors they make are rotations, and again, I'll explain this in just a moment. Okay, and those of you who take animal behavior with me will have heard of Ken Chang already. So what happens in this experiment, in his, in his rat experiment, is you got these rats and they're in this rectangular arena and the floor has got sawdust on it. And in the corner, there's a cocoa puff. Because rats are cuckoo for cocoa puffs. They love them. Rats love chocolate, rats love sugar. Give rats children's breakfast cereal. <laughs> So what happens is, and you can see here, let's, let me see if I can see that, I said, okay. So if you look here, that's where the, that, that's this, uh, what I've just circled here, the little dot is, that's where the, the bait was. The bait is just a piece of, it's a cocoa puff. The rat learns this, and then the rat is, but it's buried, right? And then it's put back in, and where does it search? And you can see, it, it searches mostly in the correct location, but it also makes mistakes, and those mistakes are there, mostly. And no matter what he did to the walls or anything, the rats always searched in the correct uh, corner with respect to the geometry, right? Just think about this. This is what? Long, a short left, long right. Oh, short left, long right. If they're, they're, they're geometrically the same. They're rotations. The rats still made errors, they were, but they were rotational errors. So the rats make errors. And you can even do this by taking, just taking the food out and have the rats search. Just see what they search. So the rats were responding to the geometry of the box. Okay? Does that make sense, everybody? The geometry. So it's just, it's the right corner because it's short left, long right. Short left, long right. It's the, it's the geometry the animals paying attention to. So in 1994, what Hermer and Spelke tried to do was they took the chain task, but they did it with toddlers and adults. So what they did is they show the, and then they disorient the subject, and sometimes they had a cue, and sometimes they didn't. Now let me explain this to you. What happened in, in, in Herman Spelke is they had a white room, completely white room. And when the adults would come in the room, they'd say, the goal is over there. And then what they'd do is they'd blindfold them and they'd spin them around to get them dizzy. They'd spin them right round, baby, right round like a record, right round, See, not very good song. So they're in this white room with black curtains by the station. No one got that reference, did they? So the, the, the white room, it's all, it's uniform, but it's, it's rectangular. And if it was any of you guys, and I said, it, it's over there, you go, okay? And then I spin you around, guess what? You're disoriented enough that you don't know where it is and you'll make the rotation errors, just like a rat would. With 
Toddlers, you don't have to spin them around, you have to talk to them for 30 seconds. It's an easy way to distract the toddler. What's your favorite TV show? That's it, that's it, they've forgotten everything. Now, where is it? And the toddlers, again, the same thing, they make rotational errors, you can see here, with both the adults and the But what happens if you make the, the, the wall blue? Well, suddenly now the adults, and you know what you do, you just go, oh, it's the right side of the blue wall, done. But little kids, they have no idea. They don't use that. Okay, that's cool. So there seems to be some kind of difference. Okay, you understand the task then? Okay. So this is, the toddlers were like the rats in the Chang study. And Andrea Pike, you saw her picture there. Her honors thesis, she did something like that with me as well, except she didn't use a room. She had a rectangular square of bristle board. They either had a white stripe on the side or two. And she said, that's, the, that's the, the goal. And she just moved it around. And she would spin it around as people had to distract themselves. And the way she had them distract themselves is she said, count backwards from 10,000 by 17s. Do it out loud and do it now. 10,000, 9,000, 900, and they're watching her spin it, and of course they get lost. 9,983, 9,964? Did I do that right? I can't remember. But now I can't remember. I'm now no longer paying attention to it spinning, and she found the same thing. That if you gave people a cue, they had no problem. So one of the things you could do then instead of that, is rotate the object on a computer monitor, and you can rotate it really fast. The thing that Andrea Pike did is she couldn't move it very quickly, but on a computer monitor, we can move it as fast as we want. So subjects were shown a black dot, sorry, a red dot on a, on a black rectangle. The rectangle was spun about the middle. The dot faded away, and people were asked where the dot was. Okay, that's what happened in this experiment we did. So, so this is just the setup here, so we could, we could say how quickly it would fade, how quickly it rotated, everything it was really nice. This is why it's always nice having a computer science program around, because you just send an email to all the computer science students and say, would anybody like to make a few hundred dollars writing me up some cool things? And they, somebody did this one. So it's like this. They see this on the monitor. There's the red dot. Where was the red dot? You don't know. Now, you know roughly, right? You know it was... And how would you solve this? Well, if there's no Q, so it's long left, short right. Well, it's either here or here. Now, that's a quick transition. People would actually see it rotate. So it wasn't like that. That would be impossible because it's two different stimuli and one's moved. What happens in this case is the original dot location, people, these are uh, 10 people, five women, five men. 31% original location. The rotation, oh, look, it's, they actually make more rotational errors than correct answers. But at least we know that it follows the same set of rules. We could also make this really easy. Now you know where it is, don't you? <laughs> that was nothing. That's easy. Oh, but except it wasn't easy. We had it spinning so fast, we had it spinning uh, 480 revolutions per minute. Is that right? Yeah. So, so eight times a second. It was spinning so fast that people didn't even pay attention to the blue. Look, they're even making more errors. They're still rotation errors. They're still rotation errors. So what? <laughs> you might ask. People will use geometry in this task. Even if there's a reliable cue. That, that blue stripe is a reliable cue, but they use the geometry instead. What if we made geometry useless? Well, there's an easy way to make geometry useless. You make a square. If it's a square, it doesn't matter because like, all the sides are the same size. So the geometric information is redundant. It, doesn't, it, it, it points to all four corners, which is what we got. Of course, because it's impossible. The task is actually impossible. But if I put a Q in, ah. Then people come over here and they follow the queue. The only way I could make people follow the queue, when I should say, oh, I should say we, make people follow the queue, was if they 
if we put a stripe on the square. So what does this mean? Well, it seems like, it seems to us, this is feature-independent geometric module. So there is some cognitive system that deals with nothing but geometry. People will use features if you force them to. If there's no other way to do it, they make the geometry useless. Errors now become based on the feature, not on the geometry. So Corey and Andrea and I were able to look at people's spatial cognition and that module without worrying about, we didn't have to get them in on MRI, we didn't have to cut into them or anything like that. So it's clear evidence then of a geometric module. Maybe if we slowed the rotation down, we would find better performance. We, we actually tried to make people do poorly because errors are what tell you anything interesting about this, these kind of experiments. So we sped it up until we got that case. They were titrated until we found errors. So does length by width follow Weber's law? So in other words, if I asked you, is that a square or a rectangle? How big does a square have to be? How different do the sides of these the sides have to be before you call it a rectangle, not a square? And is that a constant proportion of one side to the other? That would be Weber's law. That's a psychophysics thing which I've had some honor students work on this before. It's kind of cool. What if the dot was put closer to the center? Haven't tried that one. What if I did it with a touch screen? This is something I'd like to do, and if anybody would like to do an honor thesis with me someday. I mean, people do, but I'm saying doing this. Um, whereas if the person has to reach, does it make any difference? Ken Chang, the guy this is all based on, I've talked about his work before, he's convinced that reaching would make a big difference. What about pigeons? What if we tried this with non-humans? That'd be kind of cool too. And as this was a conference presentation, I would always thank people, so that's what you do. Uh, you notice the guy on the left? My lab assistant in 1993? Akio. That is Dr. Akio. Back when he was 19-year-old kid who worked in my lab when Akio was 20. Nice, right? And that's my, one of my students, Harry, the day he got his rats. He's very excited to get his rats. And that's Matt, and he was one of my assistants as well. And this was so long ago that there's my kids, and one of them's right there, and he, doesn't, he looks a lot older than that now. And the talk was given in Florida, so I showed people what snow looked like, because that was in the backyard. So a few years later, we went with it again. Ran with this a little bit more. Is geometric processing lateralized? Is it different in the left and the right hemisphere? There are data that suggest that our left hemisphere is better at spatial processing than our right hemisphere. Sorry, our left visual fields. Our right hemisphere is better than our left hemisphere. So maybe we can do that. Now, here's some slides you've seen before, so I'm going to skip those. All right, and you've seen them. These are literally the slides from the talk. Okay. So this is what we found back in 03, that one I just showed you. They relied on geometry, right? You saw that, you've seen these data. You've seen this exact slide. There's no reason to try to write things down again. You literally saw this already. The cubed square, etc. Now, what if, let's see what happens if we try this other species. I talked about pigeons. Well, what about we tried this with little chickens? This is chicks. They covered one eye or the other eye and had, the, had a chick look for uh, food in a, in a rectangular arena. Okay, so they weren't looking at a touch screen. They were looking for food, but they had one eye covered. Or both eyes uncovered, etc. you know. And it turned out they found that it was lateralized. I never know how to pronounce properly Giorgio's last name, so I'm just going to call him Giorgio. Did I just call him Giorgio because we don't even talk, call each other by our last names? But I think it would be Volortigara? Valor. Valortigara. You can see here that it's different. Easier to see on this one. 
you can see that the results are different with the left eye than they are for the right eye. The percentages, right? See how much it is? On the left eye, they follow the geometry, they don't the right. Oh, okay. Right visual field in a, in a chick. Well, let's see if we can try this in people. Now, the thing is, how the hell are we gonna do this in people? Well, one of my students at the time figured this out. She wanted to know if we get similar results. If we get, we get similar results in humans and other animals, a lot of times maybe we could find it's lateralized in humans. So let's present different stimulus to each using the spinning rectangle task that we developed previously. So how did this work? So they had a white, rect yeah, white rectangle presented to them on a monitor. And it was either presented right in front of them, binocularly, or just or way over here, or way over here. And we had them staring at a square in front of them, or sorry, an X. So we could know it was only presented to the right eye, left eye, or the right eye. So the right visual field, sorry, left visual field, right visual field, right hemisphere, left hemisphere. But there's a dot in one of the corners. You probably should get what's going to happen here. Dot fades. Question is, where's the dot? And then sometimes there was a yellow stripper dot. The feature. So here's what we expected. We figured they'd follow the feature more with the right visual field, just like with the chicks. So if you want to put this into sort of snazzy kind of terms, we would expect an interaction between viewing condition uh, and feature presence or absence. That's what we'd expect. That's not what we found. <laughs> the results don't differ based on visual field. These don't. We also didn't get the same error pattern that we got back in 03. The important takeaway here to me is that none of these differ, except for following the, the, the cue or not. But they don't differ based on what visual field they, the, the stimuli were presented in. So the pattern mirrors didn't change based on visual fields. So we could say that it's not lateralized. Based on this task, we would say that human spatial processing, at least for this task, it isn't lateralized, which is surprising. We have a corpus callosum, birds don't, so that might be playing a role here. Because remember I told you about that, birds had a corpus callosum? Birds had a corpus callosum. Don't have one of them. So there can't, there's not a lot of communication between hemispheres. In humans, we have this great big thing, so there's communication there. So we're not birds, so communication more quick. We also, I mean, as much as getting somebody to stare straight ahead and presenting stuff over here on a 27 inch monitor, they may still look over. You can't, we can maybe, I don't know, strap people's heads to or something, but I don't think that's very nice. Uh, so, yeah. This, by the way, was Stephanie Tannen's honors thesis. This is me a few years ago. Her name was at the beginning of the slide. First author, too. Her idea. Okay. We also didn't find the error pattern, so that's kind of weird. Um, it's probably the fact that the rectangle wasn't spinning fast enough. We only did 90 re revolutions per minute. The old one used 480. So we just, we probably, it doesn't make a difference with the lateralization results. Um, but we didn't replicate the other thing, so it's kind of normal. But I'm sure if we just spun it faster, we would. On average, men made more rotational errors than women, but we only had five men and the whole experiment, and 17 women, so it's kind of hard to know if that means anything. It's a pretty small number. 
we would expect sex differences, but I don't know how what we would expect from them, because rotational errors just mean you're using geometry. So I would, I would just expect that. Again, the error is the most important thing here. Okay. So what can we do? Make this task harder? Uh, our goal wasn't to look for that pattern. It was looking for lateralization. So we didn't find anything there. And again, I'm still interested in when does a square become a rectangle. And again, if you think that's an interesting thing, and if you're a psych student, you should do your thesis with me at some point. Is this lateralized? Are there sex differences? Who knows? Maybe that's right. Maybe that's lateralized at least. All right. Questions on this stuff before I? Yeah, go ahead, So, um, what does a square become a rectangle? Well, I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know. But think about this. Think about this. This is the question. It, it sounds like a stupid question, doesn't it? Or, or a weird one, but. Oh, that's great. Just leave that here. All right, let me erase that. So, we'd all agree that's a square. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's a square. So it would extend? This is the thing. Now what I'm gonna do, probably all call that a rectangle, the second one. But what if, whoops, that should be straight. Is that a rectangle? I don't know if I'd say that was or if I'd say it's a square. Because all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, right? So this is looking at people's geometric processing. It's, it's a question that I can tell you that the ratio of side lengths. So if this is x, uh, yeah, this is longer. So if this is x, and this, this is x plus 0.1 of x, that's the law I would be looking at. So to see if, if that ratio always holds. Uh, it, there, I've done some stuff, it does hold uh, within people. So everybody's a little bit different, but the ratio of sides of the length of the size uh, is constant within people. So it'll be different for all of you, but it'll be consistent within you. But yeah, it's, it's a question we don't know the answer to. Other questions on this spatial processing stuff? Okay. And as usual, I always thank my family, and you can see they're older there. And I always thank where I go to work. And for some reason, I just thought I'd thank the Montreal Canadians at this one. And there's some more snow. Again, the conference is in Florida. This year it's in Albuquerque, which will be even hotter and grosser. I won't be grosser because Florida's gross. Like it's disgusting and heavy and not like that. I don't think in New Mexico. So we have a spatial module. We have a spatial module. It's cell assemblies on top of cell assemblies, probably. And they come together in the, in the association cortex and make some kind of decision. In this case, where was the dot? This kind of work, these modules can be isolated even without, without any specialized equipment other than, in this case, a computer. Okay. So I think you should realize that the title, the name of the discipline is behavioral neuroscience. So that means we can do a lot of stuff with just behavior, right? So if we said the dot is there, is that a thought? I don't know, I guess maybe. We could call that a thought. So one of the things we have in our cortex are what are called columns. These are bunches of cells that go across the various layers. Remember how cortex has layers, right? So 
and then there's cells within each layer. Okay. These columns are just connections across these layers. That's what a column is. When these things were detected, the first time people detected columns, they got really excited. They said, are, are, these, are each of these columns a unit of thought? I don't know. Maybe. Sounds interesting. Could be. No one knows that that's the bank. So is that is the column a unit of thought? I, I, I don't know. Could be. Note the hedging. Well, it might have something to do with it. Like I, I don't want to go into limb and say the column is the unit of thought. That would be insane, I think. But I think it probably has something to do with it because we have connections with different layers. Just think about how we know that in visual cortex that the five layers do different things. Well, different layers of cortex probably do different things. That just makes a lot of sense. And connecting those things is probably what a thought is. So, okay, maybe. We put all of our sensory and memorial thoughts together and we form what's called an experience. Right? We have an experience. Like, like, think about this. Whoops. We have, and that happens seamlessly, doesn't it? Like right now, you have your, your, your hypothalamus is monitoring your blood sugar and how thirsty or hungry you might be. Um, your heart is beating. You're not even aware of that. Now that you think about it, you go, okay, I can pay attention to it and notice it. Uh, your detect, your, your, your uh, touch system can feel, now that I mention it, that you're wearing clothes, but you were actually probably not thinking about that until I said it, because you ignored it because of sensory adaptation. Um, what am I doing right now? I just felt, oh, my back hurts a little bit. And I also am thinking about what I'm gonna say next. I'm usually about two sentences ahead in my head, what, what I wanna say next. And I'm walking around, and my back's a little sweaty, which is probably more information that you wanted to know. Uh, what else? I'm still trying to figure out what to make for dinner tonight. But I have chicken defrosting. And I can think of all kinds of things at once and talk. But that's all happening at once. And I can taste the coffee in my mouth, which probably reminds me not to breathe on people because I have coffee breath. All these things are happening at once and they're, it's seamless. But we know there's separate visual, we know there are separate visual subsystems. Even with my horrible eyes, I mean, it was This is all happening at once, it's seamless, but we know it's from different systems that are doing different things. This has been something people have been talking about since the ancient Greeks. Aristotle talked about the common sense. And the common sense isn't, you know, common sense, like, you know, uh, put shoes on. That's common sense. It's not that kind of common sense. What Aristotle meant by the common sense is he meant that you take all the things together and put them together in common, put them together to form an experience. There's all kinds of other stuff going on, too. I can speak English. That's just happening. Why? All this happens, and we call these things experiences or thoughts or perhaps or whatever. binding problem, sometimes called the hard problem of consciousness. I like the binding problem better because it's about binding things together. You're putting everything together into one thing. You never think about sound only. You never think about vision only. And vision could trouble all kinds of things, right? Because like if I gave you a lot of people like like their favorite, one of their favorite comfort foods is mashed potatoes, right? So if I give you some mashed potatoes and make them the way you like them, 
and if you're civilized at all, you like to be mostly butter. Um, if I make mashed potatoes, they're an emulsion of potatoes and about half a pound of butter. You think I'm kidding? I'm really kidding. Uh, anyway, give you that and taste it. It's delicious. Do it in the dark and taste it. It's delicious. Turn on the lights, but I've dyed them blue. You will be disgusted by them. You will find they don't taste good. There's data on that like crazy. And that's just because your vision went, oh, no, no, food ain't that color, man. I'm not eating that. Mashed potatoes aren't blue. Food isn't typically blue. Even blueberries are purple. So in that case, our whole experience changes because of one thing, one sensory modality. The other, this, the, the binding problem in the engram, the engram is, how, is actually how memories are stored. If, if you can figure out either of those, uh, when you win the Nobel Prize, mention my name at the speech. That's all I ask, because the first time you heard about it was here. I, considering how old I am and how old you all are and how old people win Nobel Prizes, I will be long dead, but still mention my name, please. You can say horrible things about me. I just want to be mentioned at a Nobel Prize ceremony, frankly. That's what I'm saying. I want, to, I want you in front of the King of Sweden to say, first time I heard about this was Dave Broadbeck. Boy, that was before we had flying cars. All right. Okay, questions? That's everything I wanted to accomplish in the course. On that, that said, uh, I want to do a wrap-up thing on Wednesday, and we can do some Q&A for the final exam on Wednesday, too, if you want. And then we'll also do that Monday. We'll do Q&A for the final on Monday as well. We can do Q&A for the final on Wednesday after I got about a 10-minute, 20-minute kind of wrap it up. It'll really help. Oh, I thought that was still in this delivery. It'll really help with the essay question. Right, so we'll do some wrap-it-up stuff on
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and then it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to... Uh, Put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post, and uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay ninety nine cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time. <laughs>